Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back team to another episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Dr. Sam here as ever and wow, what a busy few weeks it has been. I'm sure many of you just like me have moved hospitals or at the very least changed rotations on the first Wednesday of August and I hope you've had a smooth start to your posts so far, especially those of you who may be just starting their foundation program or their internal medical training. This week we're taking a focused look at patients presenting with back pain with a particular focus on on ankylosing spondylitis with the help of Dr. Tom Batty, a rheumatology registrar who is brother to Dr. Alex Batty, who you may remember from episode two of the podcast. Speaking of Alex, it wouldn't be right to mention him on the show without a special shout out for tying the knot last month in the Lake District. So massive congratulations, Alex and Sophie, wishing you every happiness for the future. But without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast. I'm Dr. Sam Williams, and this week's episode, we are discussing a classic MRCP Pacer station, which we know has come up in the past. It also, ironically, makes things more difficult to pick up the more you get it, and that is back pain. And introducing our guest for this episode, it's someone who is no stranger to a bit of early morning stiffness. It's our resident rheumatology registrar. It's Dr. Tom Batty. Tom? is a rheumatology reg currently working in Eastbourne in East Sussex. And not only that, he's also proving that appearing as a guest on the Pre-Paces podcast is a condition that is both contagious and hereditary, as Tom is the older brother to Dr. Alex Batty, who featured in episode two of the podcast. So Tom, welcome to the show and thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Sam. And Tom, so just to start off, why do you think back pain is such a favourite for the examiners to include in Paces? I think it's, it's common. It's got a broad differential. It's quite easy to put in a station five as you can do a sort of nice, quick, abbreviated examination. Um, there's lots of ways they can come at it from, from different angles, from an infective point of view, from the um, rheumatology point of view, from an oncology point of view. You know, in one, one form or another, it's, it's one that's fairly likely to come up. And it certainly has come up in the past in numerous guises with many 
different diagnoses um, included, as Tom has mentioned. So, and a key differential for back pain is ankylosing spondylitis, which is going to be somewhat of a focus in this episode. But at the end of the show, Tom is going to be the first guinea pig on our new feature, Reg Against the Machine. But we will come to that a little bit later. So without further ado, let's get into this episode featuring back pain. So I think it would be fair to say that Back pain is most likely to come up in either a history station or, as Tom mentioned at the start, in a station five. It may require a comprehensive history, like in the history taking station, covering all the essentials and the red flags. But we will be covering all eventualities in this episode. So starting off with your basic history. Now, we're not going to patronise listeners to the Pre-Paces podcast because the Socrates mnemonic for taking a pain history goes without saying. So we're just going to be talking about the broad range of differential diagnoses with some pointers towards things which might give an indication to the likely diagnosis. Tom, what do you think the most likely lead-in for a patient with back pain in PACES is going to be? Again, it it depends what sort, if you're going for more acute history or a, a chronic history of back pain. I think if you're going from the direction of inflammatory back pain, then you're thinking about a sort of younger person who's presenting with several months of uh, lower back pain. And that's probably about as much as the vignette will give you. Whereas in a more acute history, you might have you know, someone with you know, more sudden onset of back pain, possibly less likely to be just straightforward lower back pain. They might give you a hint of some neurology, but they'll probably let you uncover that yourself. Perfect. So Tom's already hit the nail on the head with one of the key things you'll need to determine as you approach this station. Hopefully this will be given to you in the vignette. And that is dividing the causes of back pain into acute and chronic. So Tom, just rattling through a few of these differential diagnoses, and we'll go into each of these in turn as we progress through this podcast. What sort of differential diagnoses should the PACES candidates be considering as they approach this sort of station? But if we're talking about slightly longer histories of back pain, I think for me as a, a rheumatologist, the question always on my mind is, does this sound like an inflammatory back pain history? And we'll go into a bit more detail about what makes a back pain history sound inflammatory. If you're going down that line, then the top of your list is the, is the axial spondyloarthropathies like AS. Um, the very common differentials that's probably a bit too boring to come up in paces is just, but is very common in real life is just degenerative disc disease or degenerative spondylosis. Um, something we see a lot in rheumatology clinic um, it's just generalized joint hypermobility. It's a common cause of, of back pain in, in younger people. In paces, things that'll be a bit more common are um, malignant causes or infective causes, things like infective discitis. Uh, you know, there, there might also be a history of things like uh, intravenous drug use or endocarditis there, or even things like POTS disease of the spine, which is um, TB causing discitis there. That's the sort of stuff they love in paces. Things like Paget's disease can also come up, but that's quite a tricky one to, to get just from the history alone. You probably need um, to see the raised ALP on the blood test to really get a clue for that one. In the more acute setting, you're obviously going to want to find out if there's any history of osteoporosis or risk factors for osteoporosis, particularly if it's an older person. And then obviously any cancer history or symptoms that sound could lead towards an occult cancer history, any history of injury or trauma. And then probably not going to get it in a PACES situation, but in real life, you do need to think about, you know, non-musculoskeletal or 
you know, bone, non-bony cause of back pain, things like dissection and aortic aneurysms and renal colic and those type of things. But they're less likely to come up in your sort of station five scenarios. They're a bit too acute and patients would generally be a bit too unwell. Perfect. So the way that we're going to progress through this episode is we're going to be covering the key elements of a history, which you're going to need to determine whether or not these key elements are present in the patient you are taking history from. And the key thing we're going to cover first is particularly the red flags, because clearly these are the most serious conditions that the examiners are going to want to know that you are ruling out before you think about sort of more benign causes of back pain. And I think the first thing to think about if we're thinking about potential neurosurgical causes of back pain, potentially something like a quadriquina syndrome is one of the you know red flag emergency diagnoses. And this would typically be in a patient who has acute or potentially acute on chronic back pain. But Tom, what are the what are the key symptoms that the candidates would need to elicit from the patient when taking a history of something like a quadriquina syndrome? So it's your your bladder and bowel symptoms. So your bladder, your urinary retention, your bladder dysfunction, and that can present obviously with incontinence as well as retention, fecal incontinence, and that loss of sensation in that in that saddle area. Those are your sort of main key neurology features. And then obviously as, as that, it's the, the the sudden onset worsening of pain combined with with weakness in the legs as well is is the other feature. Yeah, and just going back to one thing you said there, Tom, is about the saddle anesthesia and. When you take history from your patients on this, can you think of a sort of a more sensitive way that you can ask patients about that? So I've, you know, I've tried it a few different ways over the years, but the one I tend to use nowadays is, is I ask them if, if they go to the toilet and they're wiping their bottom, can they feel it? Yeah. And I have to say, I completely agree because that's exactly the same question that I use. I think the main thing really is that you using lay terms like that, the patients will know, you know, what it feels like when they, when they do do that and they'll obviously know when that is abnormal. So those are the key questions when thinking about a potential quadriquina syndrome. The next question, which Tom alluded to at the start, is thinking about an occult cancer diagnosis or either a fragility fracture as a result of osteoporosis. So what are the sorts of features in a history of a patient, Tom, that would make you think that this is a potential diagnosis either of an occult cancer or a potential spinal fragility fracture as a cause of this back pain? So if we go down the sort of cancer risk first, I mean, it's the, the obvious stuff, just weight loss. Again, it depends whether this is a, in a sort of history taking station or a more station five scenario, how much time you have to really dig into these things and where you, whether you start asking about, you know, symptoms like bowel habit and hemoptysis and things are probably unless that looks like where the money is, I probably wouldn't get too diverted on that in a station five because you're going to run out of time quickly. But if you do, if it is a full-on history taking station, that might be worth exploring a bit more. And then in terms of the back pain itself, if you're thinking about um, things like metastatic core compression, you're thinking about sensory levels, as well as all those bladder and, and bowel symptoms we, we, we mentioned with the quarter equina. Um, when it comes to fragility fractures, um, you're often thinking about older people or people with other risk factors such as um, steroids or, you know, other endocrine diseases or inflammatory diseases. This commonly happens in the oncology patients as well, because often, especially people with um, brain tumors often end up on pretty hefty doses of steroids to control their symptoms. And they're a group that often get fragility fractures. And if you've had one fragility fracture in the past, 
that does affect the sort of structural integrity of the spine and you are more likely to get further fragility fractures. Yeah. And one thing I would mention as well is the fact that usually in the history of these patients, is it usually that there's a clear history of a, of some form of trauma or precipitating event, even if it's quite benign? Not to be honest in real life, not really. Um, there sometimes is, um, but you know, a lot of people we see in the rheumatology clinic who've got multiple fragility fractures didn't have. There's often quite a sudden onset, but there's not always a history of trauma. Naturally, we pick a huge amount of these uh, fractures up just incidentally on on CT scans that we do for other things. So probably in the exam, you're more likely to have a history of sort of minor precipitant trauma, but um, it's not something I would necessarily rely on. Yeah, in- interesting and. In terms of characterizing the pain of a, of a fracture, do you find with those patients with um, fragility fractures, um, what, what's the sort of nature of the pain? Often we think about fragility fractures or, or spinal fractures being worse or reproducibly worse with specific movements. Do you often find that's the case? To a degree. Um, again, it, it's one of those things, the more histories you take from people with back pain, the more you realize the sort of textbook things are all, everyone's history is quite individual. And it's, it's harder than you think to just um, pinpoint these things just from a few few little nuggets from the history or individual findings, which is sometimes not that satisfying. But, um, but I wouldn't say it's hugely sensitive or specific for it being a fragility fracture. Some, quite often people say they have difficulty with uh, extension, extension of the spine, um, but you get that in facet joint arthropathy as well. They, they have increased pain when they extend the spine. And that's something you pick up on examination there. So that could just be a, a degenerative thing. Uh, another feature you sometimes pick up on the history is they can sort of present with a sort of sudden band-like sensation, which could be that, which could be sort of a nerve compression of one of the sort of thoracic nerve roots as it comes around to the front. They can sometimes have a sort of band-like pain around the chest. Easily something that, you know, could just be added into the history there, which would be quite typical of... Um nerve root compression and you you mentioned um briefly a couple of the risk factors for osteoporosis but i thought we'd just run through one of the sort of quite common acronyms which appears um in many paces textbooks and, and notes websites and um, i don't know if this is something you you've come across before tom i expect it's probably um sort of slightly detached because you, you must see patients with osteoporosis so so often you know the risk factors off the top of your head but one that always stuck in my head possibly from medical school or maybe my mrcp part one or two revision was shattered is that something you'd come across before can't say i have actually but uh it looks pretty good yeah so this is one thing i i can't exactly where i saw it the first time but the first one is s for steroid use and the risk of osteoporosis as i understand tom is it's over five milligrams a day of prednisolone is the sort of threshold over which um, you you consider that to be a risk of osteoporosis? Yeah, so we um, normally say if you're taking uh, an average of over 7.5 milligrams per day for over a three-month period, that's when you start thinking about um, adding in bone protection with a bisphosphonate. Um, But if you're taking over 5 milligrams in, in longer terms, that would definitely be a risk factor. Below 5 milligrams, then you're down to sort of more physiological doses sort of closer to what your body would produce anyway um so that the side effects are considerably less um but so yeah certainly above five milligrams a day interesting and and then the h is for a few things i've got it down as hyperthyroidism hyperparathyroidism and hypercalciuria a is for alcohol and smoking obviously both of which will 
increase your risk of osteoporosis. The first of the two T's is thin. So um, patients with a, a low BMI. And then the second T is for testosterone low. This is where we're getting into the tenuous part of the, uh, of the acronym. So basically a low androgenic state. For example, this would be in a, in a patient who may have prostate cancer, for example, and um, is taking anti-androgenic therapy. E for early menopause. R for renal osteodystrophy. Uh, yeah, so, so re, yeah, just any, any renal failure, renal osteodystrophy is a, is a slightly more specific. And then the E for erosive inflammatory bone disease, which I guess is right in your wheelhouse, Tom. And then the last D is for diet. So low calcium, obviously um, low calcium is a, is a risk factor for that as well. And, and these sorts of questions, I would always advise listeners just to have these in the back of your mind, almost memorized so you can just jot them down quickly before the station even starts. So you know these are the questions you're going to ask if you're suspecting this could be an osteoporotic fragility fracture. And then Tom, one of the things you mentioned right at the start of the podcast was about the possibility of malignancy. And you mentioned a few, a few sort of very non-specific signs, sort of the weight loss fatigue and things like that. But there's are there any sort of more specific or more typical characteristics of back pain which would make you think of malignancy? Uh, well, certainly in in the textbooks, they say the night pain is a big thing. And it, it definitely is. If someone has constant unremitting pain, keeping them up at night, that does make you worry about cancer. I think in real life, it's not hugely discriminatory for, for malignancy versus a fracture. But I think in the context of the exam, it's always a question worth asking. Again, pain on coughing and sneezing can occur in malignancy or in a fragility fracture. And then it's those more non-specific additional symptoms like weight loss that you look out for. And then obviously if your older patients are at higher risk and it tends to be a more gradual onset than, than with a fragility fracture. And something just to put in there as well is other risk factors for developing um, malignancy. So for example, if someone's a long-term smoker, clearly they'll be at, uh, at increased risk of that as well. Definitely. And then another thing you mentioned, Tom, was infection. So this is this is coming in something which is probably slightly different to the malignancy and fracture side of things. This is a sort of quite different presentation. So what are the key things which would differentiate the fragility fractures and would be more typical symptoms of something like an infection or a discitis? Yeah. So again, then you, you want history of fever, thinking about immunocompromised states where they're on immunosuppression medications such as steroids um, or conditions like HIV. Things like night sweat, which also um, can be a factor in cancers, as you can you can get back pain associated with lymphomas or or myeloma. So night sweats is, is a very important question. Other things like diabetes, or um, if you've got uh, heart valve replacements and you're more more at risk of endocarditis, diabetic foot ulcers, and intravenous drug use are all risk factors for developing discitis. And also just having pre-existing mechanical disc disease or previous back surgery are as well. Would it be fair to say as well that this is one of the more sort of subacute or sort of grumbling back pains rather than an acute presentation? Often. Yeah, often. I know we, we briefly touched on a couple of these at the start, but things like a, a disc prolapse, which I guess is sort of degenerative disc disease, one of the more common causes that you mentioned at the start, is there anything specific that the candidates should be asking about to differentiate 
um, sort of degenerative disc disease or, or a slip disc to some of the causes we've already talked about? Um, I mean, if it's an acute uh, disc prolapse, there will often be some sort of precipitating, you know, they were trying to lift something or they suddenly felt their back go. And then obviously you've got to be worried because that's one of the causes of, of cord requina. So making sure you've asked those neurological symptoms. Um, and then if it's more of a, a facet joint problem than a disc problem, as I mentioned earlier, they tend to have sort of more pain and limitation when it comes to spinal extension. Perfect. So like I said at the start, the focus of this episode was predominantly on the musculoskeletal causes. But as we touched on earlier, it's important not to forget flank pain, which may also be just described as back pain. So things like triple A's, renal pathology, such as malignancy, renal colic, pyelonephritis, all might be described as back pain. But just for the purposes of this episode, we're going to keep the focus on musculoskeletal causes. Again, quite unlikely in paces and probably more applicable in your clinical practice, but not forgetting things like abdominal disease radiating to the back, such as pancreatitis or possibly a peptic ulcer. So just things to think about more relevant, probably for your clinical practice than in paces. So then getting to the key of this station and one of the classic paces stations is the inclusion of a patient with ankylosing spondylitis. So Tom, this is very much your wheelhouse. So if you can just give us sort of a brief description, what exactly is ankylosing spondylitis and what's the typical presentation of patients with inflammatory back pain? Ooh, well, that's a, I can give you a, the, the long answer or the very long answer when it comes to that. So ankylosing spondylitis it's a type of inflammatory arthritis, and more specifically, it's a type of seronegative uh, inflammatory arthritis. Um, the actual term ankylosing spondylitis itself is actually starting to go a little bit out of fashion in the rheumatology at circles, where we're starting more to talk about this concept of an axial spondylarthropathy. But I think, to be honest, for the purpose of paces where the examiners don't tend to be specialists and tend to be a bit behind the times, I think that's probably not a rabbit hole that we need to, to dive down too deeply. Ankylosing spondylitis is an inflammatory arthropathy that predominantly affects the axial spine, in particular the sacroiliac joints. It's associated with a asymmetrical uh, oligoarthritis, predominantly affecting the large joints in terms of its peripheral manifestations. And there are lots of other extra articular features. And there's this concept of enthesitis, which I think we've got on the schedule to talk about later, which is very important in ankylosing spondylitis. Um, and it has a sort of particular set of risk factors that I think we'll also go into down the line. Perfect. So, Tom, what, what do you think are the features of inflammatory back pain, which would differentiate this from some of the causes which we've already talked about? So it tends to be a sort of quite uh, chronic and insidious onset. So people will often be presenting with, with several months to several years history. Um, if the history is sort of, you know, a matter of weeks, then it, it's much less likely to be in inflammatory back pain unless they've got a, you know, they've got a really on it GP who's referred them right away. But people don't even tend to present to their GP until they're a couple of months down the line. It's It mainly occurs in younger people, although you do have to sort of be slightly on the lookout for people presenting in their later years, their 50s or 60s, who've had back pain since their 20s and 30s, but just have been doing busy active jobs and mean haven't been complaining about it and then all of a sudden they've retired or stopped and they've just completely seized up you do see that quite often with with people like uh, plumbers and electricians who've been sort of moving around quite a lot and then all of a sudden it catches up with them 
but it does tend to have its onset either in the teenage years or the 20s and 30s. So it is pretty unusual for people to present in their 70s or 80s with inflammatory back pain. Um, the classic thing from the history is that you get that early morning stiffness. Any cause of back pain can make you stiff in the morning for you know, 10, 20 minutes. It's when they're giving histories. But sort of half an hour to an hour is a bit indeterminate, but if they're giving you over an hour of um, stiffness before they're able to sort of get dressed and get ready for work and go about their day, that's probably more significant. The pain tends to start off as a sacroiliitis, so it tends to be more of a buttock pain. And the classic history is that one of alternating buttock pain it often does radiate down the legs, but something that they, that they say at least distinguishes a sacroiliac joint pain from sciatica is that a sacroiliac joint pain will, will pretty much never radiate below the knee, whereas sciatica obviously will. As, as the disease progresses, then you get a lot more in terms of spinal stiffness, so inability to sort of bend your back, or if you're turning around, you have to turn your whole body rather than just bending your back or your neck to look from one way to the other. And then as things get really advanced, there's sort of, you, you know, you, you can tell as people walk in the room, really, because they're sort of crowd bent forward and, you know, really struggling to look up to, to meet your eyes because they've got that question mark spine. But we hope in this day and age, we don't catch so many people at that stage. But unfortunately, we still sometimes do. And Tom, one of the things about sacroiliitis is that it can be present in a number of other inflammatory conditions. So for the candidates to demonstrate that they have a good understanding of the range of conditions which can cause a sacroiliitis, what are the other things which they could either include on examination or they could um, consider asking about in a history? Okay, well, that's, that's, a, that's a big question, but it's a very important question. I think it's um, one of the, the real key questions to, to really properly understanding rheumatology and, and something people get a bit confused on. So with rheumatology, you have these sort of big subgroups of inflammatory arthritis. One big subgroup is your, your rheumatoid arthritis, which you can then subdivide into seropositive and seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. The other big subgroup is your connective tissue diseases. So all your things like lupus, Sjogren's, myositis, scleroderma, all of those vasculitis often gets lumped in with those even though you're technically not a connective tissue disease and then in in the middle you've got your seronegative arthritis or sometimes called your seronegative spondyloarthropathies because they can all affect the spine in that family there are four main diagnoses and they all share clinical features that sort of distinguish them from those other big two groups the clinical features they all share is they're all to a greater or lesser degree associated with hlab27 they're all associated with this thing called enthesitis, which we'll talk about a bit more in, in a second. They have sort of shared demographic risk factors in that they're fairly equal proportion, male, female, and they generally tend to have a slightly younger presentation than either rheumatoid or, or some of the connective tissue diseases. And they, they share a lot of these extra articular features and there's a lot of overlap between them. So the, the diagnoses, the sort of sub-diagnoses that come under this heading of seronegative arthritis or seronegative spondyloarthropathy are ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, reactive arthritis, and enteropathic, which is essentially IBD-related arthritis. Um, and they've all got their own little features, but they all share a lot of overlap as well. If you have predominantly axial disease, so predominantly sacroiliac and spinal disease and those are your sort of first presenting features then you tend to get labeled as ankylosing spondylitis if you've got 
skin psoriasis, and there are lots of different patterns of peripheral arthritis. It tends to present more as a peripheral arthritis. Then it gets labeled as psoriatic arthritis. If you've got, if you, there's a preceding infection, which is usually either a STI, such as chlamydia or gonorrhea, or, or um, a diarrheal illness, then it's reactive arthritis. And if you've got coexistent IBD, then it's uh, enteropathic arthritis. The, the thing that sort of muddies the water a bit when you apply this to real life is that 5% of people with ankylosing spondylitis will at some point pick up a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. And so almost 10% of them will then pick up psoriasis. And it, it ends up being a little bit arbitrary, sort of what were your presenting features to which of these diagnostic labels you actually get. Um, so sorry, I've, I've, gone, I've gone off on a bit of a, a rampage there and I can't actually remember your original question, but we were talking <laughs> We were, that's okay we were talking about the uh, the other features so so basically what i'm saying is you've got to think about what those other seronegatives are so you're always asking about um psoriasis uh inflammatory bowel disease you might want to think about asking about any preceding infection whether that's a sti or a sort of diarrhea type illness the other things that tend to be common to all of them is iritis or uh, anterior uveitis and uh enthesitis so if you can explain what exactly is enthesitis how is it relevant in this cohort of patients and then also what's the significance of this when we think about our history taking or, or examination so enthesitis basically an, an emphasis or the enthesial organ is basically any bit where a tendon inserts onto the bone basically because this is a point of um, recurrent mechanical stress the body's actually developed quite a sophisticated sort of repair system around that joint, which contains lots of inflammatory cells. And it's becoming increasingly apparent that that's actually where the pathology is in all these, uh, infl- the seronegative inflammatory arthritides. So it's, it works quite differently in terms of the immunology of it compared to a joint or any other part of the body. Um, so the main way it manifests clinically is, is with sort of tendonitis. So things like you can get just a, a mechanical enthesitis sort of all the time. So I think ten, tennis elbow, golfer's elbow, decurvanes, Achilles tendonitis, plantar fasciitis. You've got tendons that go all across your rib cage and across the, the top of your iliac crests. And all of these things can become inflamed and they become tender to pressure or touch. So when you're doing your, your BASDI score for, for AS, one of the questions is you know, about areas that are tender to pressure or touch. It's, it's something that often sort of comes out in the history when you're asking these things. So I, I do always ask the question, have you had any problems with tendonitis? And then I just do a quick run through of the most common ones, so plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, tennis elbow or anything like that. So those, those are the big big three that I always ask about. And it's, it's common to all the seronegative uh, arthritides. And it's sort of a feature that, that links all of them. And it obviously, you know, if you go into the sort of nitty gritty, it has quite big effects on what biologic drugs work in that versus rheumatoid arthritis and things. You know, it's, it's not something you have to know in great detail for paces because it's you know, it mainly just affects that sort of those sort of one or two questions that you need to ask. But it's just quite interesting from a pathology point of view. That's a great explanation. I've never thought of that as having much significance beyond just, oh, it's a feature of, of AS. And just yeah. one other thing, what was that? So you, meant, you mentioned one of the sort of, is that a symptomatology score that you mentioned to do with? Um, oh, the BAS, yeah, so the BAS, that's, yeah, so the BAS Ankylosing Spondylitis Disease Activity Index, the BASDI, it's the sort of what we use it just to measure their disease activity. So 
basically the, the main reason that's relevant is because you have to have a, a Baz dice score over a certain amount to qualify for biologics. And then once you're on biologics, you need to regularly enter their Baz die into the registry to show that it's working. And if it's you're losing efficacy, then you, you need to change them to something else or you lose the funding for it. So it's um it's it's quite important, it's quite an important thing in rheumatology practice. Probably something to have just have heard of for paces, but you know, it's it's not part of the initial diagnosis and investigation. So it's unlikely to become be a focus of a station five or anything. Yeah, perfect. So that's a really comprehensive look over some of the sort of HLA-B27 associated arthropathies and the symptoms or things we should ask about, albeit in a, in a rapid fire way if, if it's a station five, but just always think about these sorts of conditions when considering a patient presenting with sort of chronic back pain. And then the other thing, Tom, which you, which you already alluded to a little bit was associated symptoms with ankylosing spondylitis and there's a there's the typical sort of thing of the a's of ankylosing spondylitis which are sort of the associated complications and some patients um, may present with these but i don't know how often you see these in your clinical practice do you often think about the the multiple a's of ankylosing spondylitis? yeah so the the a's so that most of them are pretty rare so i'm just trying to remember what they are now so you've got your aortic regurgitation seen one or two patients with that but it's it's not a common association but it is something that's worth keeping an eye out for and there's uh, av block which I don't, i'm not sure if that counts as one of the a's or not but i think it's one of those things that is if you look for it by doing sort of ecgs and cardiac mris on everyone then you find it's actually very common but i think in terms of whether it causes people any symptomatic bother is, is, is a bit more debatable and it's, it's not something we commonly face as a, a huge issue in the rheumatology clinic, but it's something to be aware of. Anterior uveitis is very common and that is something that we find it is, is a big issue. What are the other A's? Amyloidosis is one that we see rarely these days. So that's obviously AA amyloidosis, which is associated with long-term uncontrolled inflammation and tends to present predominantly with um, nephrotic syndrome. You know, these days we like to think that we treat people before they get to that stage, but it is, it's something that you know, could come up in a sort of paces type scenario, if, even if it is rare in real life. Um, Achilles tendonitis is, you know, part of that enthesitis syndrome. Oh, Sam, help me out. What other A's are there? So the ones that I've got is apical pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, yes. Because it's yeah. the only connective tissue disease or only inflammatory condition, which is associated with apical fibrosis as opposed to basal fibrosis which i think majority of other um, inflammatory conditions would produce normally mm. it's definitely something you read about and i think i think i've seen one patient with it it's is really not very common what is much more common in terms of chest involvement is to just to get restriction so just um because you get a sort of emphasitis of the ligaments and a chronic costochondritis you can get reduced expansion of the, the the chest wall which causes a restrictive lung defect that's actually really common but apical lung fibrosis itself does happen, but it is it is rare. And aortitis is another thing, which is associated with AS, but it, which does happen, but is is quite unusual. Perfect. So I guess in just in summary for that little section, so the, the things you want to be asking about in this part of the history will be so anterior uveitis. You're asking about red eyes, painful red eyes. Definitely, really important question. And then the other symptom, which. I guess is sort of related to the fibrosis, but also possibly to the AR 
would be just exertional breathlessness. But again, we're probably overcomplicating things in terms of the history, but these are just things to demonstrate that you know some potential complications of AS. Mm. And as I say, the, the more common cause of that is, is chest wall um, restriction. Just thinking about other aspects of the history. So if we talked about the main history of presenting complaints, what other aspects of the history are particularly important when thinking about these patients presenting with back pain? Um, so the family history is very important. There's, there's not always a very strong family history, but it's, it's definitely worth asking. It's, it certainly can be a factor. In terms of medication history, NSAID use is, is really important because, as we hopefully know, NSAIDs are very effective in um, ankylosing spondylitis. And so if they have a very good response to NSAIDs, that does in- increase the suspicion of an inflammatory back pain. Steroids don't tend to work. They can work quite well for the peripheral joints, but you need really quite high doses of steroids to have any effect on the on the sacroiliitis or the, or the lower back pain. And then what we've, we've sort of already spoken about past medical history already, just in terms of asking about if they have pre-existing psoriasis, yeah. pre-existing uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Obviously, these are things which you're just going to ask about yeah. just thinking about the HLA B27 related yeah. arthropathies. Yeah, past a family history of psoriasis is also an important one. So I normally say if you've got, had any problems with skin rashes or psoriasis yourself or if any family members had psoriasis and the same with, same with IBD, really. It wouldn't be a classic PACES station as well if you didn't also have some aspect of the social history involved as well. So oh, definitely. So, yeah, I think a really critical thing about this is asking about how it's affecting their function and their work. Would you agree with that, Tom? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a big factor. I'm going to mention smoking as well can definitely exacerbate ankylosing spondylitis. So smoking cessation is actually quite an important part of management. Just another quick shout out to our sponsors over at PassTest.com who have kindly sponsored this episode for us. Over at PassTest.com, their online paces revision resource has got tons of practice stations, including those featuring patients with back pain. So head over there and apply everything you've learned from this episode of the show after you finish listening. Once again, head over to pastest.com and sign up to boost your paces revision. So then moving on to the examination part of it. So you've taken your history and this is a patient who you suspect may have an inflammatory back pain or an inflammatory sacroiliitis. Tom, when you think about examining these patients in clinic, it's, it's probably going to be quite different to how the candidates are going to do it in paces. So thinking in a sort of very paces specific way, they've got a very short period of time. How would you best try and demonstrate the findings that are suggestive of AS and what other things that you think the candidates could do in, in that short space of time to demonstrate they've got a good idea of the comprehensive assessment of a patient with inflammatory back pain? That's a very good question. And it is a bit difficult to, to separate it from sort of what I do in clinic nowadays. But I think, so I think the key things really, you want to demonstrate uh, reduced spinal range of motion. So I just get them to do the sort of classic, you know, lean forward and try and touch the floor lean back as far as you can, obviously putting a hand out to support them because they, they could get unsteady, you know, lateral flexion from side to side and rotation. And then Shoba's test is something you should at least offer to do, or technically it's the modified Shoba's test. Sort of look out for it, for it. you know, if they want you to actually do it, there'll probably be a tape measure around somewhere and, a, and you need a pen. 
but again they probably won't get you to do it in the examination in the exam because you need to sort of make a mark with a biro on someone's back and if they're getting multiple candidates to do it that person's back will probably you know you'll probably already have the landmarks to go from unless you're the first person going so briefly to describe what you do in a modified Schober's test is you essentially draw a line between the dimples of Venus and then you draw another line you, with your tape measure you measure five centimeters below and 10 centimeters above sort of put the tape measure between those lines so it starts off at 15 centimeters you tell them to bend forward as, as far as they can to try and touch their toes and then you measure how much the the lumbar spine extends with that movement if it if it extends less than five centimeters that's you know, definitely a pathological reduced range of lumbar spine movement. If it goes five to 10 centimeters, that's in that sort of borderline zone and more than 10 is, is normal. Another thing you could do is um, ask them to stand up against a wall and, and just get them to put their head right back against the wall. And if they can't put their head back against the wall, you could sort of offer to, to measure the, the tragus to wall distance, which is something that's often increased uh, in ankylosing spondylitis is something the physios do a lot to measure um, whether disease is progressing. Obviously, you'd want to just have a quick listen to their heart and uh, listen to their lungs to look for the sort of aforementioned signs of um, apical fibrosis and uh, aortic regurge. You'd want to have a quick um, look and squeeze of, of the joints, um, looking for any other peripheral joint synovitis, looking at the nails for nail pitting, looking at the elbows for psoriasis. And then just uh, just a quick test of chest expansion to look for reduced chest expansion. So it sounds like a lot, but you can you can whiz through that quite quickly. In terms of examining the the sacroiliac joint itself, you're probably not going to have time, and they're probably not going to expect you to do it too much. But if you just you can examine their sort of hip flexion extension if you have time. There are tests like the sacroiliac stress test where you're essentially just pressing pressing down on, on uh, either the side of their pelvis. Also, it's always worth uh, offering to do sort of a brief neurological exam, but you, you desperately hope that they say that's, that, that's fine because there's no way you have to, time to do that in a, a station five scenario. Yeah, I, I guess it would be slightly different if the patient had presented with, you know, a potential neurosurgical cause of back pain or a cordial oh, spina. Yeah. That's going to be more the focus of a, of a brief neurological examination. But like you say, Tom, even so, you're going to be doing it very quickly, you know, a real brief examination of power, brief examination of sensation as quick as you can, just to demonstrate that the person, um, you know, doesn't have any power. And that, and that can easily be done by an actor as well. They don't necessarily need to have had um, a patient come in for that. They can easily just you know, ask, you know, ask the actor, if they ask you to move your leg, don't do it. You know, that's easy, an easy instruction for the actor. Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely an interesting point. I think, the use of actors rather than real patients in paces is is becoming you know is becoming increasingly common especially with covid because it's obviously you're asking patients to take quite a risk on themselves to you know see hordes of of doctors if they're a bit frail or immunocompromised for whatever reason so it, you are more likely to get a healthy volunteer who's trying to simulate the station and then just briefly with touching on the examination of some of the other differential diagnoses we talked about at the start so if it's fragility fracture that we're suspecting, I guess the key part of the examination is just going to be some spinal palpation and locating the exact level of the fracture. I don't know if there's much else you would add to that, Tom. Yeah, I, I, th I think that's that's pretty much it. So that when you're palpating the spine, there's kind of two steps, just sort of like touching each vertebrae in turn and seeing if they 
trying to localize the pain that way. They sometimes say if there is a, a discitis or a malignancy sort of percussing the spine. So a lot of people in real life will just kind of just sort of use their fist to whack down the spine. I think in paces that can look a bit sort of heavy handed. So almost percussing down the spine as if you were sort of percussing a chest. Um, and that can sort of reveal deeper lesions through the, the vibrations then causing pain apparently. And done just as quickly as regular palpation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just really quickly. So boom, 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 boom. Yeah. So perfectly suitable for, uh, for paces when you've got that time pressure. So moving on to the investigation. So more than likely the lead in for station five, or even at the end of the history station, the examiners are going to ask you, or you'll already be expected to consider what investigations you want to do next. And this might be slightly contrived in that it's probably going to be either in an outpatient setting, potentially they're presented on the medical take, but these are going to be things which um, are going to be bread and butter to you, Tom, in terms of the, the very basics that we start off with when investigating these patients. And again, we're going to focus quite a bit on uh, inflammatory back pain and, and the investigation of that. And we'll talk a little bit later about the, the different diagnoses, but we're going to focus on angst bond for now. So when you think about running through the very basics of investigation, again, it's going to be slightly different to how you do it in clinic, but what are the sorts of um, investigations that you would do for a patient presenting with new suspected inflammatory back pain? You obviously start with, you know, the basics, bedside stuff, in clinic you, you're going to get your sort of routine blood pressure and things i think we probably don't do it as much as we should but uh, getting an ecg and a urine dip i think is a legitimate thing and then lung function as i mentioned because a, an obstructive de defect is common that's definitely something you can consider but it's not something we do first first line for everyone so in terms of blood tests full blood count is extremely important so you're looking for you know any evidence of infection you know is there a a neutrophilia is there an anemia of chronic disease which we commonly see is there a raised platelet count which is a sort of general marker of um, long-term inflammation then you want inflammatory markers the crp is 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 the more, the more important is you know slightly more sensitive we normally get the crp and the asr if the crp is normal but the asr is high that would make you think more down the lines of is there some sort of paraprotein thing going on could this be a myeloma so most of the causes of inflammatory back pain will give you raised inflammatory markers, but not particularly reliably, especially psoriatic arthritis. A significant proportion of people with psoriatic arthritis will have normal inflammatory mar markers. Uh, using ease will obviously affect sort of, you know, if you're giving all these people NSAIDs, you want to know what their renal function is like. If it's all axial symptoms, then you don't really need, you know, in when I say axial symptoms, I mean sort of sacroiliac and spinal symptoms. You don't need to worry about sort of doing antibody testing because it's not going to be rheumatoid or connective tissue disease. But if there's more, if it's more presenting as peripheral arthropathy, then you might want to think about doing your autoantibodies like your rheumatoid factors, your CCPs, your ANAs, and that sort of thing. Testing for HLA-B27, it's, it's not hugely sensitive or specific because, you know, 90% of people with ankylosing spondylitis have HLA-B27. But if you consider that 10% of the, pop, you know, if you, of the Northern European population have HLA B27. It is something we do quite, it is something we do quite a lot and it does sort of add confidence to your diagnosis. And if there be HLA B27 negative, then you've got to think, you know, really hard about whether this, you know, is an inflammatory spondyloarthropathy or not. 
In terms of imaging, it slightly depends how long the symptoms would be going on for. If it's a really chronic history, then you might often start with um, doing an x-ray of their um, sacroiliac joints and of their spine. Well, probably you just start with an x-ray of the sacroiliac joints. And if, it's a, if, it's a, if they've had a history for years, then they should have some changes there, technically via the old uh, New York classification criteria for ankylosing spondylitis to, to have a diagnosis of AS you do need to have some evidence of x-ray changes. However, we're increasingly just going straight to MRI because MRI is much more sensitive than x-ray and it picks up changes far, far earlier. You can argue it's less specific. I think we're definitely finding people with sort of subtle changes in MRI who are kind of in histories that aren't hugely inflammatory that we're kind of getting in that awkward situation. Is this just a bit of joint hypermobility or is this definite inflammatory back pain? But I think we're definitely using MRI more and more. And then I guess some of the sort of gold star investigations, and again, this is more for completeness than an actual diagnosis that you would suspect would be things like a chest X-ray looking for fibrosis or maybe evidence of heart failure. You might mention getting a CT of the chest, again, looking for fibrosis. And again, you can get an echocardiogram potentially looking for heart failure. But, it, but again, these are more for completeness and, and probably things that you just mention in paces rather than things that you would yeah. just yeah. say just, that you would do. Just ways of showing off to the examiner that you you kind of know about all these, these small print stuff. You've got, to, you've got to crowbar all the things you know in there somehow or another. But those, those investigations would be directed by your examination findings. Yeah, absolutely. Most likely next on the list is going to be how are you going to manage this patient? So presuming that we've got a decent history of um, an inflammatory sacroiliitis and we strongly suspect this is going to be something similar to ankylosing spondylitis, what are the sort of mainstays of management of this condition, Tom? So the you'd probably divide that into pharmacological and non-pharmacological. So starting with the non-pharmacological side of things, there's the, the education and advice side. Um, and you, you have to explain to people, you know, this is a, a chronic condition, but one that can be managed and with certain you know, lifestyle steps um, plus medication. Nowadays, with the modern treatments, we should be able to prevent this being anything more than an, a background annoyance. But it does sometimes, you know, it will take long term medication and isn't something that's going to go away. Physiotherapy is a really important thing, and that's really important in keeping people's spinal mobility and function. So we refer people to physio as soon as they're diagnosed. Um, as I mentioned earlier, smoking cessation is important because smoking has a negative impact on prognosis and encouraging people that, you know, exercise is safe and it is, is you know, a good thing to do uh, to, to reduce the risk of the disease progressing. So in terms of pharmacological management, um, in terms of managing the back pain and the, sacroil the sacroiliitis, um, NSAIDs are the, the mainstay of management. So we know we, you know, everyone's got their sort of own favorite cocktail of, of NSAIDs. So often people have already tried ibuprofen over the counter. So we tend to go to for naproxen. And if that's not working, if they're young and don't have cardiovascular risk factors, then uh, Toracoxib is quite a, is, which is a COX-2 inhibitor. It's quite a popular one, but there's, you know, there's lots of different NSAIDs and you know, it's, it's what works for the patient. So the general rules are you have to have tried two NSAIDs and then you go on to biologic therapy. And the first line biologic therapy is anti-TNFs. 
And again, there are lots of different anti-TNF options, which I won't get too bogged down in because you don't need to know it for paces. If there's more peripheral disease, then in that case, then we often start with, with DMARDs. So either sort of methotrexate or sulfasalazine is often our, is often our first choice. Um, but they, they only work for the peripheral inflammatory arthritis and not for the spinal disease. Um, steroids, they can, again, help the peripheral disease, but they don't tend to work hugely well for the spinal disease they can you know at higher doses they can but the, the toxicity is not really acceptable they don't tend to work as well as NSAIDs anyway yeah interesting so there's some clear differentiation there between the things which you would use for a more peripheral arthropathy compared to um, the axial arthropathy so NSAIDs the mainstay of treatment possibly with some immunotherapy if they meet the criteria and steroids and DMARs very much being confined to sort of more peripheral disease. So yeah, really key to differentiate that. And I'm sure that would look good in the examiner's books. Moving away from and closing spondylitis. And I know this isn't um, maybe something you're quite as familiar with, um, Tom, but I'm sure this is something which you came across during your paces revision in any case. In the case of a suspected spinal fracture, so the history is more suggestive of that, they've got strong risk factors for osteoporosis. Um, the simple investigations are going to be x-rays and, and CTs to look for evidence of fracture, which is, which is quite straightforward. In the case of suspected osteoporosis, I believe the diagnostic investigation is a is a DEXA scan. Yeah, if you want to if you want to diagnose someone with osteoporosis, then a DEXA scan is, is helpful. Although technically, if they've had a you know an osteoporotic looking sort of wedge compression fracture, technically just having a fragility fracture with with no other clear cause is, is enough to get you a diagnosis, regardless of the DEXA scan result. And often in older people, like different areas have different cutoffs, but either sort of over eighty or over eighty five depending on your local criteria, you don't tend to do DEXA scans because you, there, there's such widespread degenerative disease that you get sort of unreliable results really because it, degenerative disease gives you sort of falsely elevated bone density due to the sclerosis that's associated. And you also have to take that into account if they've got multiple fragility fractures, that also gives you a falsely elevated bone density because the bone's collapsed down on, upon itself. So, you know, with, with some caveats and caution, a DEXA scan is the, is the way to go. Perfect. And then the next thing was a cord requirement syndrome, which I guess is going to be hopefully pretty obvious if, if some of the red flags we mentioned earlier in the history taking have been, um, have been reported by the patient. And I mean, in a way, this makes the management pretty straightforward because you need an, an emergency MRI spine and you need to contact either the neurosurgical team or if you have a, a spinal surgery team they're going to be the, the people who are going to be implicated in fixing the uh, cord compression if they have it yep that's it nice and simple <laughs> and, <laughs> and um the last thing which we were going to mention is uh talking about in infection and and discitis and Clearly, these things are going to be picked up on the blood tests. You're going to be expecting a, a high white cell count with inflammatory markers, neutrophilia, and then in a similar way to the fractures and the um, quarter aquinas syndrome, you're going to have to get some sort of um, spinal imaging, either in the way of a CT spine or an MRI spine. And then in terms of ongoing management, 
antibiotics in line with your local policy, Tom? Yeah, I think often if if someone's you know not overtly septic and they're stable, then there's a school of thought that you should tr- probably hold off the antibiotics until you've got microbiological diagnosis. Um, either from the blood cultures or sometimes these people end up having bone biopsies to try and get to the bottom of what's going on or if there is any epidural abscess or collection then that that can also be biopsied you've also got to just think when you're taking your history if there is if it does sound like an infective history asking about risk factors for you know specific bugs that can cause discitis so things like you know tb is there any history of living in an endemic area or any history of exposure previously to TB or things like brucellosis um, can cause an infective um, sacroiliitis or discitis. Um, and that's often associated with history of, you know, working with animals. If you've, if you work in the farming industry, that's, that's obviously a big risk factor. Brilliant. So that pretty much brings us to the end of the main part of the show, looking at back pain. And we've discussed a number of differential diagnoses which may be presented to you in paces from these patients. So just to recap, we've quickly talked about thinking about acute and chronic back pain with acute pain typically being associated with injury and trauma. You're thinking fragility fractures or metastatic fractures, degenerative disc disease, and not forgetting, of course, non-musculoskeletal causes such as aortic syndromes, such as dissection or abdominal aortic aneurysm rupture as well as thinking about renal pathology. And then on the chronic side of things, obviously Tom's given us his expertise on ankylosing spondylitis and sacroiliitis. Thinking about discitis in patients who have significant risk factors, whether they're immunosuppressed or they've got sources of bacteremia. And then we've also just spoken quite in depth about the investigations and management of these patients. So before we get to the end of the show, Tom's going to be our first guinea pig on our new feature, Reg Against the Machine. The best podcast feature that's ever been seen is Reg Against the Machine. Welcome to our new feature, Reg Against the Machine. Through recording this podcast, I felt bad that whilst we had Quiz the Consultant, we didn't have an equivalent for the Regis who came on the show. So as a result, I've used up the whole of my study budget to buy a machine which generates quizzes tenuously related to the specialty of each of our registrar guests. Whereas the consultants are quizzed on a topic of their choosing, this is a topic on literally anything which might be slightly related to the registrar's subspecialty. And Tom has kindly agreed to be our first guinea pig. So Tom, how are you feeling about being the first candidate on Reg Against the Machine? Excited, tense. (laughs) Tense? Tense. (laughs) Not feeling like a fish. (laughs) So before we get started, I've just got to fire up this quiz machine. So here we go. And it's spat out this quiz for us and... The quiz is cryptically titled A Room with a View. Now, I mean, when I put this in, I thought it was going to automatically give us questions on room, but it's actually R-O-O-M, not R-H-E-U-M. So, Tom, there are 10 questions. All of the answers are in some way related to rooms in one way or another. I'm sure it'll all become clear as the quiz progresses. So, Tom, are you ready for 10 questions on a quiz all about rooms? 
Born ready. <laughs> Question number one. What is the name of the facility in hotels where you can order food and drinks by phone direct to where you are staying? Room service. Correct. And the first question is down. He's on the board. In show business, which room is the space in a theatre or similar venue that functions as a waiting room or lounge for the performers before, during or after the show when they aren't on stage? The green room. That's correct for another point. In the world of Harry Potter, what is the name of the room which only appears when a person is in great need of it? The Room of Requirement. You were enough of a fan to know about yeah, the real, Room of Requirement. I feel myself as a hardcore Potter fan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question number four. Which phrase describes a topic, question, or controversial issue that's obvious that everyone knows about but no one wants to mention as it's controversial, inflammatory, or dangerous? Is that the elephant in the room? It is the elephant in the room. And he's four for four, 100% so far. Now this one might catch you out. Which novel by Emma Donoghue was later made into a film of the same name in 2015 and follows the story of a young woman held captive for seven years in a squalid shed? Oh, is, is, is that the one that's just called Room? It is just called Room. <laughs> oh, <laughs> trying trying to trick me there <laughs> question number six which type of chat is typically boorish and involves humor around crude or sexual topics i mean i can think of lots of words but i'm trying to think how i'm going to link this in with a room uh oh i'm reluctant to give up my perfect record so far <laughs> but it's, it's, i can see it crumbling before my eyes uh, uh boardroom Back. It's it's not boardroom. I'll, 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 I'll give it to you. It's it's locker room chat. Locker room chat. Oh god, the ignominy. Often the defence of the clear misogynist. <laughs> Question number seven: Which band in 1998 sang the lyrics "Boom, boom, boom, boom"? I want you in my room. Oh, is that the Venga Boys? <laughs> it was the Venga Boys. Fantastic, which is puts you at six out of seven. Question number eight What sarcastic expression commands people who are engaging in public displays of affection to continue their amorous activities in private? Get a room. Get a room indeed. Which BBC comedy TV series has been hosted by Frank Skinner and Paul Merson and involves guests coming on the show? to discuss their pet peeves being banished into which fictional room? Room 101. And that's correct. Last question, question number 10. A team of players discover clues, solve puzzles and accomplish tasks in order to finish which fun touristy challenge? The escape room. It is an escape room. And I have to say, Tom, for a first guinea pig on Reg Against the Machine, you have absolutely thrashed the machine's quiz with a score of nine out of ten so tom that only leaves us to say thank you so much for being our guinea pig on reg against the machine and thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the pre-paces podcast where we've been discussing back pain cheers thanks sam i enjoyed it good to hear tom thanks for coming on and we always love these episodes where you where we bring you someone who's willing to have a bit of fun whilst discussing these critically important paces topics and 
We really appreciate all the feedback we get on the show. So if you want to get in touch, please do like, comment and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can get in touch with us either on Twitter, it's at prepacespodcast, or you can email us at prepacespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode on back pain, and we will see you next time on the Pre Paces Podcast.